Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Stroke Diva Fabulous Radio Show. I am your host, Kamari H. Richmond, and of course, I have another fabulous show for you this evening. We are talking to two brothers. We're actually talking to Dietrich and Carlos Muhammad. Now, if you tuned in a couple weeks ago, Dietrich was on the call talking about uh, Cherish, and he also talked about Love for Self, his company. Tonight, we have his brother on, to, who's also a motivational speaker, poet, artist, and entrepreneur, so we'll have him talk about what he does, and then they have written a book that's kind of controversial, and so we're going to talk about that book. So, fellas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you have us. Uh, me too. So, tell us uh, about Love for Self. Well, maybe you can go ahead since you were the original guest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Love for Self, um, it's Love for Self Enterprise, and basically our ideal of our company and the name that we um, pick, if you think about it from a, a religious perspective of a name, a good name is better than gold. And so when we thought about our company and the name, we wanted to give a name with substance, with power. And we understand that in our communities, a lot of people are dealing with self-hatred. So we wanted to pick a name that had meaning and that when people think about the name, love for self, it brings them back to their natural self and their natural abilities, which is spreading love out in our communities. So we want a substance with our name, but we do a lot of things, um, motivational events, um, speaking events, poetry, health and wellness. So we try to touch up on a lot of components that is affecting the black community uh, together. And tell us a little bit about each of those programs that you're, you're working with, working on. You say each program? Mm, tell us a little bit about the programs. Well, um, what year was that, Carlos? When we did the when we did the event with um, the um, we did a love yes. It was two thousand and eight. In two thousand and eight, we did um an event called the Love Self National Conference. It was um basically an event that brought together. It was like um, several components. It was an economic component to it. It was a um, spiritual, religious, and um, also political. We had um, Dennis Muhammad, who's also the founder of the Peacekeepers um, Initiative, and that's like a national initiative. You can probably read about that on the Internet. We had Cynthia McKinney, who at that time was running for president under the Green Party ticket with um, Rosa Clemente. 
and she was um, also a keynote. And we had Dr. Joy DeGree Leary, who wrote the book um, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Those were some of our, you know, major speakers who were um, speaking um, at the event that year. But besides that, we also had different breakout activities, um, conversations, discussions, and there was Q&A with, um, you know, with the speakers and also the um, people that participated in the forum. The idea was to launch that to bring about several other conferences and events that are still forthcoming. Um, after that, there was other um, events that we had. We had um, Professor Griff from Public Enemy do a Love for Self meet and greet at an event in Baltimore. I think that was like 2009, which actually was centered around the themes of Love for Self. Also, um, you know, Loving Your Black Self. It was at an event called the um, National or the Natural Hair Expo that's held annually in Baltimore as well. And we've done several community events in upstate New York. In Niagara Falls, New York, we would do an annual Love for Self weekend reunion, which was comprised of, you know, different activities for the community, meet and greets, um, basketball tournaments, um, and just different outings where, you know, the community basically came together. And it was just a festival event. And we did that for about three years back to back. So we have other stuff that we have in the pot right now. So we'll talk about that as we proceed in this conversation. Okay. And that's, I mean, that's very positive work. And so in the the world that we're living in today, where everything is so fast paced and there's this 24 hour news cycle and uh, the kids are being bombarded with, the music and the um, the the TV, you know, TV, radio, uh, being uh, kind of pushed in different ways by their peers, and you know, we know about the bullying. How how do you begin to teach someone how to? And I guess I'm pretty much talking about about children because we know what we can do as adults. But how do you teach? Uh, someone to love themselves. Hmm. Well, um, the best format and way to teach somebody to love themselves is to give them knowledge of themselves. A lot of um, self-esteem stems from us not knowing who we are as a people. And so that is one of the foundations of love for self. We want to give back the proper knowledge of self so people can understand yourself. And once you begin to know who you are and the great things that our people did and contributed to America and the world over, then it makes you see yourself in a different light. So how do we reach out? So let's say if you're working, let's say you're working with a, a child and you are you're doing a workshop or you're doing some kind of outdoor activity or indoor activity, talking about uh, what we were doing in Egypt and, and what was going on in in Europe, do you get resistance from a parent who says, well, you know, that's not, that was in the past, we need to move on, or I've never heard that before. All I know is, you know, George Washington and Abe Lincoln and, you know, <laughs> that's kind right. of where 
history. Right. So how I think, uh, well, personally, I think um, I've never received any resistance from any parent mm-hmm. in reference to, um, you know, anything that was taught. Most of the times I would do things like show images of positive black um, people, whether it was princes, kings, queens, um, just positive images and reinforcement. A lot of times children are more visual anyways, especially at a young age, which is why, like, a lot of times children, children's books have more imagery than words. So I think, you know, the visualization piece is important and what they constantly see. I just speak to this. Um, I have a daughter that's five years old. All of her dolls, her baby dolls, look like her. Um, not really her, but they look like her. I mean, I have not variations in hue. There's light-skinned baby dolls and um, dark-skinned baby dolls, like very dark-skinned baby dolls. Mm-hmm. And um, it's constantly a visual reinforcement. So now it's to the point where if my daughter goes to a store to pick out a baby doll, she automatically picks out the doll that looks like her. And I will constantly reinforce that. These dolls look like you. These dolls look like you. Um, you're beautiful. Your hair is beautiful. Your skin is beautiful. You know, I'll just say that in um, dialogue, and I would also do that in, you know, in the classroom, setting the classroom environment. Whenever I was dealing with or deal with black children, I speak in those terms constantly. It's constant reinforcement. You know, that's kind of like my um, brother. He just did a workshop with um, my students um, for the program that I work part-time for. And he talked about Know Thyself. And the response was amazing. Um, Not only that, he spoke for two hours, and he was only supposed to speak for like an hour. Mm -hmm. And the children still wanted him to speak more. They were so, why do we got to leave? And they asked me, they was like, um, Mr. Muhammad, can you come back and do a second part? Oh, that is phenomenal. That is phenomenal. What it, uh, let, let's, what's like the key component that you can teach a child about knowing themselves? Like what is it that you, what is like one of the things that keeps them so captivated? I think a lot of times they're captivated because for the most part, I mean, and people don't even realize it, like even on a subconscious level or unconscious level, they don't even realize that they're reinforcing um, white supremacy to a large degree. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's like via religion, via TV, and what they see in the media, via uh, just being in the environment, seeing the political landscape of the environment. I think like in every aspect of society, white supremacy is reinforced, whether it's, whether it's subtle or blatant, it's reinforced. So anytime you say something that's like not necessarily combative or something that's just totally different from what they're constantly being bombarded with, they feel a sense of encouragement. And, you know, when I would talk to the students, I think they would sense that, like, wow, we are amazing, we are great. We are powerful, and they would take to that. I think a lot of times, just that whole concept of love for self, when you talk about love and you're transmitting love, your energy and love and your presentation and love and what you're saying, and they can, say, they can feel a sense of like, yo, this person really loves us, 
when he loves our people, people take to that and they gravitate to that more. As opposed to somebody who's like, I'm here with a curriculum, I'm here to talk about X, Y, and Z, but it's still reinforcing the same exact stuff that pretty much made them feel the same way they feel about the educational school system. A lot of our children are like, oh, I hate history. I hate economics. I hate mathematics. I hate this. And, they all, and the reason they're saying that, because subconsciously, it doesn't speak to them. It's speaking to the same stuff that they've been exposed to, you know, since they've been in the educational school system. So I think anytime you speak differently and you're speaking their language, and they may not even know what their language is, but that language is the language of self-love because the core of you wants to know who you are. The core of you wants to know how great you are. The core of you wants to know how powerful you are. And a lot of times we're um, told or we're taught in a certain way that disempowers us or take away our love for ourselves and disobeys of that nature. So I think anytime you're genuinely speaking to that, they gravitate. And I think that's uh, absolutely, absolutely true. Anytime you, uh, you're you faced with something new, you either love it, you kind of, you're on the fence, or you even hate it. But if you're captivated by what you're hearing and what you're seeing, you're more likely to take in that information in a positive way. And Dietrich right. and I talked about this. You know, like in the 90s, we had this whole wave of consciousness for, you know, young people in our age group where we were learning our history and uh, we really wanted to get into our roots, you know, whether it's change our names or we're dashiki or, you know, we were expressing ourselves in so many different ways in the 90s. And right. and that's kind of, um, I guess it's a, it's a whole new conscious level. Mm-hmm. And I guess with this global world, global economy, it seems like we are, I don't want to say stuck or or that we're going back, but I just don't see that now. Yes. And, I mean, you have to think about it too realistically. If you think about children coming up and even the history scope of things, that they believe that the only history that we um, gave was slavery, Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. maybe a little Frederick Douglass, maybe a paragraph of Malcolm X, and only by any means necessary. Absolutely. But what about, yes, but what about before? What about the people that put up the pyramids? What about those type of things that we did? What about the fathers of math, the fathers of science, the fathers of law? What about those things? What about the inventions that we did? Those type of things. What if you start teaching your children that type of stuff? Then what happens with them? How do they see themselves? How do they feel about themselves? And that goes right back uh, to what you were talking about, the self-esteem. When you know your history, you you be, you think differently, you act differently. You know, we know the whole adage: if you don't know your history, then you're doomed to repeat it. Right. Yeah, and it's 
um, I'm thinking that because they're not learning this history in the school system, they're not even talking about slavery anymore. <laughs> well, I think there's a, a, a concerted effort on the part of the government and other um, factions that actually deliberately do certain things to make sure that people are not aware and not, you know, waking up. I remember in the 90s when I'm, I'm a college student, and I'm not, you know, saying I'm an old man, but anyways, but in the 90s, there was a brother who walked up to me. He was at that time working for, I believe, the Dean of Student Affairs. And he came to me. I was the president of the Black Student Union. And he came up to me, and he said, I want to show you something. And I said, um, what is it? And he brought me a letter. And I actually still have that letter to this day. I kept it because, um, to me, it laid the framework for a lot of stuff that happened after. So he gave me the letter, and it was a, a letter that said that there was a movement at that time by the ADL and other um, entities that wanted to remove hate speech from college campus. But when they were saying hate speech, they were really seeking out black um, leaders, black organizations, and black speakers who were coming on the campus, you know, basically talking about empowerment, you know, um, and enriching black people with, you know, love for self and different things of that nature. So they were like, they actually listed a bunch of names on the um, forum of like speakers like the Honorable Minister Farrakhan, like Dr. Jawanza Kanjupal, like Dr. Ben, like Anthony Broder. There was different names that was on this sheet and it was talking about, you know, eliminating this kind of hate speech. Now, ironically, at that time, there was, like, a large influx of, like, speakers, like, coming to um, college campuses in the 90s. Like, you can go to a college campus where you want to see, like, a black speaker at some point, especially during Black History Month. But now, if you go to college campuses, the speakers are pretty much these motivational-style speakers, but they're not really speaking into the heart, the condition, and um, the core of um, black people, especially like, even when black student union speakers are bringing speakers, they're more encouraged to bring speakers that's talking about leadership development and um, different things of that nature. But they're not bringing those same kind of speakers to the degree that they were bringing them in the 90s. Also, even if you look at the music at that time, the music was more revolutionary. It was more controversial. It was more so about love and self. You had public enemy, you had brand Nubian, you had poor righteous teachers, you had a tribe called Quest and the native tongues. They were so, um, um, I'm trying to think of that, the Jungle Brothers. Uh, you had different groups that were basically speaking to the condition of black people. Even on the West Coast, you had artists like Cam. You had um, Paris. You had Ice Cube who was giving messages back then. So it was like the whole fabric of the environment was like totally different. The consciousness of black people was waking up. A lot of stuff started happening after the Rodney King verdict with the O.J. Simpson situation, black people's consciousness was a lot different. So the response was different. So I think after a certain point, it was like, yo, let's stifle this. Let's kill this. So we'll kill it on the college campus because they knew that students were always the ones that started the movement. The SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, were all students. Dr. King, the Southern Leadership Christian um, Conference, they were students. Um, NAACP, for the most part, those leaders at that time were young people. 
Kwame Torre, he was a student with um, Dr. King, who at that time he was Stokely Carmichael. So it was always like students that were leading the movement, students that were leading the revolution. So what do you do? Muffle the students. Stop students from having positive people with positive messages that reinforce love for themselves, love for self. Let's kill that voice in the students, then we'll ultimately kill the, um, kill the um, movement. Let's kill that voice in the move in the um, music. Hip hop at that time became a growing trend. So let's make let's um, shift the whole paradigm even with hip hop music and change the direction of hip hop music so we can kill the movement. And I think that was all deliberate. I think so. And you just mentioned like all those teachers and speakers. I mean, even at the University of Maryland, um, uh, Minister Farrakhan, you know, spoke. So that's what I, I, I missed the 90s <laughs> because right. there was this outburst, this growth of, you know, young black people just coming into their own. And we know that it's the students that make a difference, especially when we look at what's going on now with these young students marching and preaching. And, I mean, it's like a whole new generation of activists because sometimes right. – when you get to a certain point, you know, middle age, you know, you, you're focused on you're focused on politics, but you kind of like you want to reminisce about what you did when you were in college or what you did right. way back in the day. But at a certain point, you either stay active, become more active, or you just kind of start going with the flow, just kind of with the, the status quo. Right. Oh, hold on, I'm going to make this last time. But there's uh, a scripture that says, you know, elders for counsel, young people for war. So I think it happens like that by design. I think at a certain point. Carlos, are you on the speaker or are you on the phone? Because you sound muffled. Go ahead. Does that sound better? Yes. That's better, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think um, sometimes with the students, you know, they have a natural tendency to want to see something happen right then and there. Like, they're like, yo, I don't want to wait for nothing. That's why, like, when Freddie Gray happened, you see an uprising in Boston. I wasn't like old people that was um, uprising, having these uprisings. These were young people. Right. They have a different energy. They have a different energy. Like, look, look we'll tip over a police officer's cop. We'll throw some, you know, they just have a whole different spirit. And, you know, after you mature and get older, everything is more practical and strategic. Okay, we have to do this. That's why I think, like, even when the scripture says elders for um, council, young people for war, it's saying that because by design and by natural progression, that's generally what happens. And we start becoming like the elders, and we start becoming the teachers and say, look, we did it like this when we were young and rambunctious and blah, 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 but this is how you have to do it. You need to move this way. You need to move that way. And then we keep that going. But the problem is with our community, like the elders now, they're not imparting information to the young people. A lot of the elders just gave up on the movement themselves, and they became real complacent. And, you know, like you said, they're more comfortable with their nine-to-fives now. They're more comfortable working on in this industry or that industry, and they don't want to ruffle feathers. And they forgot about their time of activism, a lot of them. I think it was on a movie, I'm Going to Get You Sucker, when they said it. They went in as revolutionaries. They came out with government jobs. You know, right. it was like a little joke. Right, so... You know, our people, we would go in as revolutionaries or come out, you know, we're real radical. Then all of a sudden we'd get older 
we'll become complacent. And, you know, when the student, when, when the young people are rising up, they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they would do such a thing. You know, it's sort of like people start looking down on That's not the type of elders that, in my personal opinion, that those young people need. And, you know, I think I think of two, two components to that. Uh, one, so many young people are having children that they don't, you know, they don't know themselves. Right. Two, we have social media, which I think has made it, you know, for the young people now, you know, they have exploded social media so they can, you know, you can get information to, you know, I mean, all over the globe. Everyone is getting information. But now it's also, you know, from like our conscious level, uh, I'm still stuck in our 90s, uh, you know, with social media, you could do that two, three times, a hundred times bigger with that piece. So they have that. But the other thing I think about, too, is we have so many young parents, and they just Mm -hmm. don't know. Right. But you know what? you got to look at the school system as well. And um, when you begin looking at the school system, like from principals on down, like I know in Baltimore where I live, you have a lot of grade changing and things like that because people become more concerned about keeping their jobs than actually building these children up to be something. And so they will change a whole group of students that are not passing grades to make sure that they pass. And now we have these children going out who can't even read 12th grade and at a second grade reading level. And you you just sit there and you're like, how did they make it this far? But people are thinking about keeping their jobs and nobody is standing up. And so when you're not standing up and you're not fighting for the cause or anything, you let anything go. And then when you look at the black community as a whole, that's how we are. We think snitching, we think snitching, if you see somebody rob somebody's grandmother and you know who the person is and you tell that you're snitching. Mm-hmm. But you're not thinking about the black woman that you're hurt and or affected. And not even so much as black or whatever color, but it's the ideal of people harming each other and nobody's doing anything. But they taught us how to be scared of the youth, that now we don't need to stand up for the youth. There used to be a time when grown-ups would see children doing something, they would redirect them. Now nobody don't say nothing. Right. Yeah, now you're afraid. You know, somebody's child will call the police on you. and <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> you know, if you're right. a parent, the child will call the police on you and, you know, ho- you know, just holler bloody murder. And, you know, that is that is definitely happening uh, right. for some children. But the, the whole idea of parenting now is a whole different, it's a whole different new. new right, right. Yeah. So... Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And so when we thought about love for self, we thought about the solution. Mm-hmm. And when we thought about the answer, that is the right answer, love for self. And so you have to teach people how to love in order to make, in order to make the proper moves. Right, absolutely. And it just and it just don't start with just throwing out the word. It starts with love for self. When you develop the proper love for self, then it make it easier to have love for your other brothers and sisters, for people that look like you. 
and make it easier for you to understand what people that look like you are going through and make it easier. Absolutely, absolutely. Now I want to transition into uh, your book. So tell us, because I, you told me it's a little controversial, so tell us about the why you, why, well, how you wrote the book. Did you self-publish or did you go through a publisher? Uh, how, why you wrote it and how did you write it and what did you, uh, or what do you expect to come out of it? Well, well actually, he got two books from. Um, Caress Spirits it, okay. that's his first book, but I'll let him do the talking. Go ahead. Go ahead, Carlos. Yeah, well, um, like Diedrich said, I wrote the first book, Caress Spirits, which basically was a book of um, poetry. Um, most of it was poetry I wrote during my college years. Um, it was centered around the theme of freedom, justice, and equality, love, peace, and happiness, and um, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Um, those are the central themes of the book. So the poems are sectioned off based upon those themes. Um, fast forward to 2015, I wrote a book called Your Daddy Wasn't Shit, So You're Not Going to Be Shit, Pardon the Expletive. So when I wrote that book, I was teaching a, fr- um, a freshman seminar class that I pretty much taught at two community colleges in Baltimore. Um, community College in Baltimore County and Baltimore City Community College. And I was always um, teaching about victim language and creator language and, you know, knowing thyself. So one of the conversations we used to have in the class was about what I pretty much coined as curse words. And, you know, I know generally when people think about curse words, they think about expletives, um, profane words, vulgar words, and I knew that when, they, when I said curse words, that would be the first thing that came to people's minds. So I asked them the question. I said, can I, I want everybody to say as many curse words as you can, and I'll write them on the board. Students will start uttering out, B, Ho, um, S-H-I-T, blah, blah. They just start spitting out a bunch of different curse words, like expletives. And then I would say, okay, I'm going to say this again. Our conversation is about creator language and victim language. How many of you can identify curse words? Tell me some curse words. Then there was always, maybe the way I would reiterate it, there was always some student that would say, try, I'll try. It's impossible. I can't do this. I can't do that. They would always end up realizing, oh, it's a play on words. So when you mean curse words, you're not talking about profane words or vulgar words, but you're talking about curse words in the sense of how curse has been defined. Curse has been defined as anything that will stagnate, potentially limit or prohibit somebody from doing something. So in mythology, when they would say so-and-so cast a spell or put a curse on somebody, generally that person was relegated to whatever they were cursed to be or they were stagnated to whatever they were cursed to be, or they may have been limited in whatever they were cursed to be. So basically, I would use the words, okay, I'll try. Try is a curse word. When you say you'll try something, you're already putting in your head the possibility of failure. Well, I'll try. If, if somebody say to a woman, I'll try to be at, uh, to, I'll try to be at your job to pick you up at 8 o'clock, she's going to look at it with a side eye. What? 
You're going to try to be it. No, you need to be here, Negro. If you say to one of your children, um, I need you to be home by 8, and they say, I'll try, Mom. You're going to be like, what? No, you need to be here. Because even in the word try, there's limitation. Also, I can't do something. I can't do this. I can't do that. You're stagnating yourself, and you're putting, you know, barriers on your own success. So basically, I use those words and that whole concept to create the book. Your daddy wasn't shit, so you're not going to be shit. Removing the harmful effects of curse words. And we pretty much delve into that whole topic. And how did you come up with, I mean, how did you come up with that whole concept? Um, it pretty much grew out of, literally, it would grow out of those conversations, the conversations that we would always have, me amongst my peers. We would always talk about, like, there was a thing we would say amongst each other. Um, me, Diedrich, and, you know, our comrades, they were like, yo, somebody was like, I'll try something. They were like, yo, to try is to fail. You know, that would be the response, the rebuttal, to try is to fail. Or somebody was like, I can't do something. You yeah, don't think you can. You're, you're, you're stagnant. You put limitations on yourself. But I didn't think about conceptualizing it into, like, actual language and part of actually talking to my students about language, like creator and victim language. And when I was thinking about that, I think one of the conversations we were having in the class, it sort of just came out. And after that, I was like, hi. It was like an aha moment. Like, hi. Curse words. And then I started, I started implementing that every, um, every year in my class. But the only thing is, at that point, I didn't even think in terms of writing a book about it until maybe around 2014, I started thinking, you know, I'm going to write a book about the subject. In 2015, it came full-blown, like, I need to write this in a book. And that's when um that book came up. Well now now that you now that I know the history of it, the history of it, <laughs> then the title yes. the title then makes sense. Right. So like in the in the book, it's sort of like written like a story where there's two children, one child um has positive reinforcement, he's told a bunch of positive things about himself. He's constantly encouraged to do well. He's spoken to in a way that, you know, will basically make him feel good about himself. And another child, on the other hand, his environment, they both pretty much both grow up in the same environment. And I put them in the same negative environment for a reason. They grew up in the same environment, but the household environment and the language in the household was a lot different. So one household was dysfunctional. The language was demeaning. Um, it wasn't really encouraging. There was a lot of curse words, if you will, spoken in that household. And that child ended up growing up with a lot of um, a lot of um, insecurities and thinking that they can't be um, successful in certain things. They started failing, becoming a failure in certain capacities. And after, as a result, one of them became a bum and one became a very wealthy millionaire. So you have to read the book to see how it plays out. Because I don't want to tell everything. But I do want your listeners to, you know, be intrigued to buy the book. But it basically um, goes along those lines of those two characters and, you know, explains you know, the differences and how curse words affected one versus, you know, more transformative language that helped the other one. Now, did you self-publish? Yes. Um, and I think Didi was going into that. We also have a, a brand called Love for Self-Publishing, which is under the Love for Self-Enterprise umbrella. Love for Self-Publishing is what we use 
that's the um the name we use for any publishing venture that we do. So we did the Correct Spirit came under Love Self Publishing. This book is under Love Self Publishing and the future publications that are coming out will all be under Love Self Publishing. So even in that there's a dual meaning. You know, you have love for self publishing and then you have love for self publishing. Like if we're self publishing, we're a self publishing venture, but we have love for self publishing. So I don't know if you understand the play on words. <laughs> so it's like a play on words. The whole concept is literature that constantly fosters love for self. And it don't even have to be literature that's blatantly talking about the history of black people or the history of any group of people. But just the principles in itself is geared to show self-love in some capacity. Exactly. And that's just really the heart of it all. If you have... And, and you, you know, you guys have said this. If you have self-love, then you, if you have it, then you can pass it and 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 pay it forward. If you don't love yourself, then how can you love how can you love anyone else if you don't right. have it for yourself? Wow. So, if, oh, I'm gonna do so I wrote a poem that I actually have a video piece. If you go to YouTube, there's a video. To the book, your daddy wasn't um, shit, so you're not going to be shit. There's a video component that also um, I wrote and, um, and said the poem, you know. So it goes into a little bit or sort of throws the person off. But, you know, I think everybody should really look into that. Well, we encourage people to, to do so. And tell us about the other book. Uh, spirits. Yes. Um, Crest Spirits is basically me delving into my poetic side. So um, I always was um, artistically inclined in some capacity or in some way trying to express myself. Actually, me and my brother Diedrich were always drawing together. We were always writing together. Um, I was writing books, then Diedrich started writing books with me. I was like, oh, come in. I'm about to make a book. Can you draw somebody in it? And we, was, we would just start developing these different characters. And um, I ended up writing about, like, 200 books as a child. Um, I would fold the paper. I would fold the paper up and stick them in a the box once I completed another book. When I completed another book, I would fold it up, put it in the box. Fold it up, put it in the box. Um and I didn't realize at that time, I was doing that as a hobby. I'm a kid, you know. I'm writing these books. I'm drawing pictures and putting the pictures in the books. I didn't look at it like, hey, maybe one day I'll become an author. Like, I'm not even thinking along those lines. I'm just doing something because I love doing it as a child. And um, it didn't come into full fruition until, you know, I became an adult. Like, okay, you know, that's what I was always supposed to do anyway. That's why I had such interest in it, you know, as a child. That's the thing. As as a child, you never know which journey your life is going to take. You never know what path you're going to take. Yeah. But I think as parents, when we see children and they're interested in something, a lot of times we're like, stop doing this and stop doing that, instead of like looking at it as something that should be cultivated and developed. Right. And I think, you know, when I was the now, we have to start seeing certain things in our children and, and work on cultivating and developing that. Like, and you got to try different things out with children. Like, you may try arts and crafts. Man, that's not the one for them. They don't really feel that. You might try the sciences. Ah, they're not really into that. You might try 
you know, different aspects of, you know, the environment or just doing certain things. Let me put them in the dance class. Uh, they don't really like that. Let me put them in the swim class. Oh, they're really good at this. Oh, that way. I'm just saying you have to just keep trying things up. And once you see, like, the light come on, you start cultivating and developing it. And because as a as a parent, you can uh, sometimes stifle that. Yeah, sometimes. A lot of times parents stifle it. I know them. Oh, stop doing that crap. I don't want to hear you say that. I remember hearing Jay-Z say something on um, the interview once. He used to he used to beat on the table and he'd be rapping and stuff. Everybody's like, ah, fucking hands and stuff. And, um, you know, he was just making noise to them at that time. And um, now look at him, you know. Right, right. It's amazing. It really mm-hmm. is. It's it's amazing. So I want to thank you, uh, both Dietrich and Carlos, for being on the show. Any last words for us? Anything else you want to talk about that we did not cover? Dietrich, well, well, let me just say this real quick, um, Carlos. Um, first, make sure you get the books. If you don't have the books, get the books. I think that they are books that everybody should have. And I think once they read the second book and how powerful words are, it's going to hit that seller once people really start reading it and see how it affects them. But also, you can um, join. We have some Facebook groups that advocate love for self. We have a love for self-health group, love for self-book club, um, and the Love for Self Virtual Poetry um, Lounge. And so basically, um, for the Love for Self Poetry Lounge, instead of you going to a lounge, we wanted to bring it to your living room. So people, they can send videos, they can um, send something that they wrote in the group. And it's just a beautiful um, group, all positive, advocating love for self, just beautiful spirits. And... Also, if you're interested in um, having us come to you, you can contact you can contact me at seven one six nine four zero six three eight eight if you want us to come as a speaker, do a speaking engagement. Whoever's listening, you could give us a contact, give us a call. And what uh, website and what social media sites can everyone find you all on? Um, if you pretty much type in love, L-U-B, number four, and self, you'll be able to find us on anything. If you, just, if you hashtag love for self, you'll be able to access it. Um, there's so many things out there with love for self. Like you just said, there's love for self network, love for self speaking group. I think if you just do a love for self study, you'll be able to find it easily. And that's L-U-B, number four, and self, S-E-L-F. And I wanted to ask you, so why did you uh... – the L-U-V, and why did you use the number four? Well, four symbolizes foundation. Um, the reason, I mean, love was simply just a play on words with the L-U-V, but also you is in the middle of the L and the B. So, you know, you have to love yourself, but mm-hmm. that is the foundation pretty much of everything that, you know, is purposeful in your life, loving yourself. That was beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you all for being on the show this evening. We have been talking to Dietrich and Carlos Muhammad. 
I uh, am thankful for those that have logged in this evening. Uh, as I mentioned, TalkShoe is live and recorded. And in about 50 minutes, once we disconnect, it will start to upload. And I invite you to share it with your friends. So just blast it on Facebook and Twitter and uh, every social media site that, that you can think of and that you are a part of. And anything else, guys? I got these. I um, well, I just want to say thank you for having us. I'm here to choose me. My yes, pleasure. Me, me too as well. My pleasure. Thank you for, for doing a second spot on the show, uh, Diedrich. We were talking after the last show, and he's like, my brother is, you know, my brother is like <laughs> the greatest, so he has to be on the show. Yes. He was like, you heard somebody. I said, I told you I remember. Birthday's May 5th. I'm sorry. I hear, I think, another conversation going on. Yeah, yes. I, yeah. I was yeah, I don't know who that is. That's, I thought that was you. Yeah, I thought it was you too. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not, it sounds like they were saying something about Facebook or something. Yeah. Did we have a, another caller log in? Because sometimes people log in and they are also on the line ready to speak. Hey, it's February, February 9th. Okay. Well, there is someone yeah, talking. It's all they were saying something. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> okay, you just never know what will happen uh, when you are live on, on Talk To. So thank you all, fellas. Uh, hold on for a little bit. And, again, I want to thank our guests that have logged in. Talk To, I am here uh, every Monday night at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time with a lot of fabulous guests. So that's why it is a fabulous show. So everyone has a fabulous week and definitely go onto YouTube, hashtag love for yourself so that you can get the books and connect with both Dietrich and Carlos. Thanks everyone. You you want us to hold on, right? Yes. Okay. Right. Fabulous week everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 